Welcome to the 11th episode of Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Mr. Simon Payton Jones. Would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? I work at Microsoft's research lab in Cambridge, where I've been for the last 15 years. Before that, I was at the University of Glasgow for about 10 years and University College London for about seven years before that. So I'm really, I'm a kind of academic turned, but the last 15 years I've been at Microsoft's research lab. So now I study programming languages, particularly functional programming languages, and I've been very involved with the design and implementation of Haskell right back to its very early days. And in the last, I suppose, five years, I've become very involved in computer science education at school, what your US colleagues might call K-12 computer science. And there's big things happening in the UK on that front. So that's been a big part of my life fairly recently. So how did you get into functional programming since you've been doing this for quite a while? What was the epiphany that you had that attracted you to functional programming? Oh, I went to a sort of three-lecture course given by uh, Arthur Norman, who was a professor at the University of Cambridge Computer Lab when I was an undergraduate. Or maybe it was in my third year or maybe fourth year. Anyway, I went to this short lecture series in which he says, I'm going to show you how to do a doubly linked list, that is sort of forward and backward pointers, without using any side effects at all. It seemed entirely implausible to me. But that was my first exposure to purely functional programming. And the more I saw of it, the more I loved it, because it was a kind of beautiful mixture of the kind of I was a mathematics undergraduate, so it was a lovely mixture of mathematics and computer science. The sort of theory and practice seemed to come particularly close together. So I kind of fell in love with it almost immediately, actually. And then I found very inspirational some papers that David Turner wrote on SK combinators and how to implement lambda calculus using SK combinators. And that seemed also massively implausible that you could do everything in the lambda calculus with just S and K, but you can. It was those kind of moments where you think, oh, that seems wild, but it's true, that really got me hooked. And I've never really looked back. I've stuck sort of insanely, single-mindedly to purely functional programming ever since. So I just think it's the most beautiful thing. I know you've been doing this for a while because I've got your book, The Implementation of Functional Programming Languages. That was suggested by another guest previously on an episode, Reed Draper. And I've been started digging into that. And Mm -hmm. that's been out for a while, but it still holds up fairly well. Yeah, it's, uh, this stuff doesn't date. And I noticed you started, you're using Miranda, and it looks an awful lot like Haskell does, so it looks like you took a lot of that inspiration of Miranda and ML, and I can kind of see that back in that days for what I've seen of Haskell. Yeah, so back when we first designed Haskell, there was quite a few research groups were doing functional programming, in particular group that I was interested in were doing lazy functional programming, but they all had their own language. But by then, we had kind of evolved what we thought was a pretty clear consensus about what a lazy functional programming language should look like. It should have data types and pattern matching, some simple module system, functions and where clauses and let bindings and case expressions and so forth. So we thought it was pretty much we wanted to avoid the confusion caused by an unnecessary diversity of surface syntax. So we thought if we agreed on a common language, we could just concentrate on the core issues. And so that was where the Haskell design came from. It was a bunch of people from around the world who said, let's just give ourselves a common syntax. So in some ways, it was a pretty unambitious goal. We thought we were just going to enshrine the then consensus. And indeed, Miranda was an inspiration. And at one stage, we thought we might even just use Miranda, but it turned out that didn't work out. So we ended up having to design a whole new language. And in fact, that gave us a lot more wiggle room for innovating, which is, and Haskell has turned out to be an absolute laboratory for innovation ever since. Yeah, because I remember seeing some of that stuff and hearing some other interviews with you about that early design and that purity kind of forced you into the laboratory of new thinking. Right, yeah. You had an interview on Software Engineering Radio a while back in which you guys talked about how you guys thought you painted yourself into a corner being so pure and dealing with I.O. because you didn't have I.O. in the early days and it really forced you to, it sounded like it forced you to innovate on how to handle I.O. and come up with some interesting different ways of thinking about it. Yeah, that was the genesis of monadic I.O. So it was the things that were non-controversial about Haskell, those sort of baseline assumptions, was it going to be pure and it was going to be lazy? And those two were connected together because it's very difficult to have a lazy language that isn't pure because the order of evaluation is not very clear otherwise in a lazy language. And so then I.O. with an unclear order of evaluation is not much good. And at that stage, because we were academics, we didn't worry too much about the fact that we didn't have any I.O. After all, I mean, what could you want more than a function that that goes from string to string. That can do anything, right? Kind of like a you know, universal computation. But actually, it wasn't long before we started to want to use Haskell for practical things and wanted to do more. And so we explored a number of other alternatives, which none of which seemed very satisfactory before finally coming up 
with the monadic IO story that has lasted the following 20 years. How was it like in the early days of working with a program without IO? Or is it just you guys would compile in and think about things you were trying to solve and give pre... Yeah, it wasn't really a big issue, right? Because we were still you know, preoccupied about how to compile high-order functions or how to... At that stage, as soon as the Haskell design progressed a bit further and we introduced type classes, we started to spend a lot of time thinking about how to implement type classes and what their design should be and what the design for modules and abstractions should be. So there was a lot to think about beyond I.O. because, and this was just in the basic language design before we ever got to practical applications. So initially, it wasn't much of an issue, to be honest. It was only when we had a real implementation and people started to want to use it, they started to bleat and say, oh, (laughs) I'd like to use this language, but we can't. It was more about the implementation details, so the input-output didn't make as much sense because you were still working on getting a language working from the ground up. Well, it just wasn't as much of a priority, yes. It wasn't sort of top of the priority stack. So the basic I.O. was perfectly fine at that stage. Okay. So with Miranda and your implementation of functional programming languages, I think I've heard you say the same thing about Haskell, where you boil it down to an extended Lambda calculus, and then you take that Lambda calculus and process it. It sounds like you guys do the same thing in Haskell, where you have the core Haskell language that everything else is built on, extended on top of? Yeah. I think that's one of the sort of... The things I'm proudest of about GHC is that 25 years since we built the first prototype of GHC, its intermediate language is still the Lambda calculus. So it really takes this enormous language. I mean, Haskell really is a very big language now. It's full of all sorts of, you know, uh, kind of interesting design ideas, and some of which may survive and some not. But it's sort of big and complicated, and it squeezes it all down into this tiny little language that really just has variables, application, Lambda, let, we don't really need let, but it's very helpful, case. And then the only thing we've added recently is coercions. And that's what let us do type families nicely. So it's been a, a single innovation, a single addition, essentially, to the intermediate language in 25 years, which is just amazing. And, and it's not that it's this intermediate language with a whole lot of extra crap sitting around the side to tell you what's going on. It, that's all it is. Everything gets squeezed down that very thin toothpaste tube. And it's a kind of testament to the expressiveness of System F, Gerard and Reynolds's work, that you can take such an expressive source language and turn it all into this tiny intermediate language without losing efficiency. It's not that you give up a lot to do this. In fact, it makes it in some ways easier to optimize because you've got such a small language that you're paying attention to. When you started going through that in the book, it's one amazing how much things you can just compress into just the pure basics of functional programming language with just a few little tweaks like your let and let rec to be able to get those little contextual definitions. And it's just one of those things that shows how strong that extended Lambda calculus really is. Yeah, that's right. And it's not a language you'd want to write big programs in. I mean, the surface, Haskell is a big language for a reason. You know, it's easier easier to write programs if you have lots of tool support. But the fact that everything can be explained in terms of translation to this smaller language is an incredible sanity check. It means if you invent some wild feature in the source language, if you can't translate it into this intermediate language, well, maybe it's too wild. It's a sanity check on the language design. Well, that and just the the power of the Lambda calculus in general. People hear that it's the equivalent of a Turing complete language and the equivalent of that kind of thing, but just using all functions. But that helps give a concrete real-world example, it seems, that, look, no, it really is that powerful. Yeah, yeah, that's right. If you take a Haskell program and you say, you know, dedump simple, you'll see the Lambda calculus that it compiles into. So because Haskell's kind of that old and it started out as a research language, it seems like recently it's really kicked its stride in within the past five years or so again into much more mainstream. Is that what you've seen when people are using it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's followed an unusual trajectory for a language. Language is usually a kind of go global, as it were, quickly and gain a very wide user base. And that's happened much more recently. In the past, there was Java and there was C++, but more recently, you know, there's Python and Ruby and Clojure and Scala, all of which have gained lots of attention. But Haskell's been a funny intermediate in that rather than becoming very widely used quickly, it sort of has gradually become more widely used with a sharp increase recently, yes. But I think it's still, although there's been a very sharp increase recently, I think it's still not on the scale with Java and C++. These are, but I'm not 
too upset about that, but it still leaves us room to innovate. Yeah, and I guess part of that was the question of, with its growth and with its kickoff, it seems like that people are recognizing it as a language that's more than just academic nowadays. Where people thought, yeah, oh, it's just a toy language that academics with are playing with to prove out concepts. But it seems like there's been a lot of work and research that you guys have put in over the years that have finally gotten it to a point where people are like, wait, no, this is this is a real language. This is really powerful. I can actually build websites and web frameworks in this and build things. So, and there have been several components to that. I mean, one component is the language has developed quite a lot, and we've done quite a lot of innovation there, and the compilers got pretty good. But another huge thing, which I've had very little to do with, but I'm thrilled about, is that the development of the package infrastructure. So, there's a you know, hackage is the equivalent of CPAN. CPAN. Is it CPAN for uh, for Python? The sort of centralized uh, central repository for libraries, and there's thousands of libraries there. So people, you know, do amazing things and turn it into a library that they then upload to package and other people can download. And there's a sort of distribution and installation system called Cabal. So you just say, Cabal install Transformers 2.7, and then it downloads all the dependent packages and installs them, and away you go. And this is a huge improvement over the situation 15 years ago. I think Cabal is now quite long in the tooth. It's been around for about 10 years, but it had a massive effect on the Haskell ecosystem, just massive. So the combination of the language is still developing and innovating, the library ecosystem has dramatically improved. And there have been, uh, as you say, you mentioned web frameworks. I mean, Snap and YesOrd are very big, well-developed web frameworks now that are based entirely on Haskell. So because the library ecosystem has got to the point where you can build really large systems and have them work reliably, and the compiler is good enough to be sure that they'll continue to work reliably, I think that sort of bootstrapped our way into, yes, as you say, real-world applications. And then people start using Haskell, and they, and they think, how could I ever not have done this? It's very heartening to see the way that once people sometimes make the transition into Haskell, they become very enthusiastic about it. More so, if you like, than the original Haskell geeks, because they know where they've come from. And there seems like there's two other things that have helped play into the Haskell growth as well, at least from an, a more on the edge and outsider perspective, is the stalling out of Moore's Law, mm-hmm. where the computer chips aren't getting faster, but we're just getting more of them. Mm-hmm. And then your work at Microsoft Research, where you're working next to people like Eric Meyer and others who are taking the Mm -hmm. concepts that you are forging ahead with Haskell and working to sneak them into other languages that are a little more mainstream, such as F-sharp and pulling a bunch of those concepts into C-sharp as well with Microsoft, where C-sharp gets it, oh, now Java starts to get it, now you start to bring in some of these other ideas to more, to the large, large, large user-based programming languages. That's right. That's right. So my, um, on the Moore's Law thing, on the, the parallelism front, it's, I do think that the only way to program a highly parallel machines is the best way is to start from a language whose computational fabric is inherently parallel, which functional programming languages are, rather than start from a base whose computational fabric is inherently sequential and try to parallelize it, which is what everybody else tries to do. So GHC comes with a multi-core parallel thing out of the box and transactional memory, and it kind of, it just works. And you need to do a bit of profiling to figure out whether your program is speeding up, and if not, why not? But the fact that it's kind of routinely works and without going to enormous special measures is very kind of heartening and empowering for people, I think. That said, it's not a question of problem solved. Parallelism is a very complicated problem, and it has many aspects you might think about algorithms that are non-deterministically parallel so that if you you don't you know if you do want to do an algorithm which there isn't one answer there's lots of answers will do but you can compute a delaney triangulation in parallel and really it doesn't matter exactly which triangulation you get of your convex polygon but you'd like to get a triangulation obeying certain criteria so those algorithms are a bit harder to express in a purely functional way because they tend to be deterministic which in other settings is a feature another big issue is locality and load balancing and granularity in lower-level languages, you tend to have a lot of control over those things. In a very high-level language, like a functional language, you have less control. So I don't want to give the impression at all that parallelism is a solved problem. And another challenge is that the whole point about parallel programs is they're meant to run fast. And in order to run fast, you've got to get the constant factors down. And to get the constant factors down, you need to apply a lot of engineering effort. Right? Then parallel systems have a lot of engineering in them. Just 
how all the different processes run and how they communicate and how things are buffered and how many times you copy messages before they, there's a lot of stuff and how garbage collection happens. And do you do that in parallel? There's a tremendous amount of goop to make it work. So what that means is that it's quite hard for small projects to build good parallel systems. So I think there's a ways to go yet, but I do think that declarative approaches, ones which take limiting side effects very seriously, take that as a high order bit of the design is the way to go. And I think Haskell is a kind of exemplar. It's not, doesn't solve the problem, but it's a great exemplar of how far you can go out quickly using that approach. Uh, what was the other thing you mentioned? Oh, about the sort of ideas pipeline. Yes, my, um, I, I, I see Haskell as a kind of laboratory to develop ideas in. And if things go well, then the ideas get picked up and they sort of move down the pipeline into F sharp and down the pipeline into C sharp and into other more mainstream languages. So that's a kind of a medium term as it were, vector for impact aside from people using Haskell itself. Kind of longer term thing is I still, I wonder whether our slow growth, so Haskell has this sort of long term, you know, Haskell predates Java, right? It was around for years before Java was, certainly five or more years before Java appeared. So it's kind of granddaddy of languages in a way. It's not quite as old as C sharp, oh, sorry, C++, much older than C sharp, of course. But I kind of, wonder whether Haskell's steady growth will continue. Maybe, the way I, I sometimes put it, is that when the, the limestone of imperative programming has worn away, the granite of functional programming will be revealed underneath. So that perhaps as time goes on, I think the disadvantages of functional programming become less important and the advantages to do with reasoning ability and testing and parallelism become more important, right, as we design larger and more ambitious software. So I sort of speculate that over time, purely functional approaches may become more and more and more popular. So maybe in the end, people really will use Haskell in the mainstream, possibly, or a successor. But that's off the planning horizon. And meanwhile, I'm very happy to have it as a kind of ideas laboratory, because that still leaves us room to innovate. If you know, too many people use your language, you can't change it anymore. And it seems like that pipeline is feeding people back into Haskell to see the original source of these ideas kind of thing, where people are like, well, what about this? Well, you want static typing? Go look at Haskell, because that's a real different kind of static right. typing. Yeah, just just go look at it as an exemplar, as an exemplar of what you can do if you really take static typing seriously and say, how far can you go? Parametric polymorphism. Haskell goes sort of further than pretty much any other realistic programming language in that direction. So it makes a good showcase for some of these advanced programming techniques. And I was thinking about, as your earlier comment with, go look at it as the exemplar. I've dug into it, and okay, now I've fallen in love because I understand what Haskell has and how much Haskell's gotten right versus having to deal with static-type languages that were fairly decent implementations but not quite as strong. Or now, oh, wait, now I, now if I'm forced into purity, it means I think about things up front a lot more. And as yeah. people say, if you can get it to compile in Haskell, it pretty much works for the most part. Yeah, it varies, but but that that's that's a common experience. Yeah, where it's causing the people, and people have that people fall in love with that feeling versus spending. Well, okay, it's compiled, but now I got to spend a whole bunch of time after it compiled trying to figure out. What, well, yeah, it compiled, but it wasn't quite as strong. So there's a lot of edge cases that the compiler missed. Yeah, yeah. And certainly type type errors, people don't like fixing type errors, but they're a lot easier to fix than runtime errors. I don't know how people build. I and mean, the, the, the biggest single thing for static typing, I think, is not so much that it helps you write your program in the first place, but it helps you maintain your program. So GHC itself is an example. It's uh, whatever, you know, 150,000 lines of Haskell now. It's 20 years old, and I regularly refactor it in pretty large-scale ways. And I just wouldn't dare do that if I didn't have static typing to keep me sane. So I got this enormous code base, which are whole chunks of it that I've forgotten about. And yet I can confidently make systemic changes through it because I know that the type check is going to catch all the places that change needs to go. That's a huge, huge thing. I don't know how people maintain big code bases without static typing. Lots and lots of faith. <laughs> <laughs> faith and pain, yeah. It's just maintenance is a big, big thing. Maintenance, refactoring, you know, all support for all of that kind of touching on that is with the typing and the amount of effort seems to bring it from everybody I've heard that does it and I've started scratching the surface a little bit and it seems really interesting is 
it seems to bring more engineering and science back into the computer science. Because you're so strongly typed, because you've got the algebraic data types, you're having to spend more time up front thinking about what the problem actually is that you're trying to solve when you're dealing with the strong types, the purity, because, well, now I'm passing the IO monad in over and over and over again, and this is getting to be a pain. It kind of signals that maybe we're we're interleaving too many different concerns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And purely functional programming forces you, even without types by being pure, you have to pass in all the values that you're going to need. You can't just sort of reach out by a side effect and grab them. So that forces you to be pretty explicit about what the interface to your functions are, right? Because all their inputs show up as their parameters. All their outputs show up in their results. That forces you to think carefully, because if you get an awful lot of parameters or an awful lot of results, you think, oh, did I build the right abstraction here? I wonder if I could find a better way to modularize my problem. And I'm wondering kind of how much of that is helps build, people are building robust software, because I know on certain other languages, you hear the TDD debate, uh-huh. and whether or not it's needed or not, and it sounds like you have people who just are on the side of, what it really boils down to is, TDD is makes you slow down and actually think about what you're doing. I'm all for testing though, don't get me wrong, I think te- test-driven development is great. Yeah, and I was thinking more along the lines of whether or not it's unit tests or things like the quick check style where it's like, okay, stop and actually think about what your, yeah, what are your invariants that you have to solve? What is the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, yeah. The other thing that's worth realizing is that there's people often dislike static type systems because they've only met weak ones. Right. So a weak or not very expressive static type system gets in your way all the time. It prevents you writing functions that you want to write and that you know are fine. So imagine Pascal, for example, which gave you, which you had lists. You could have a list with integers in it, but if you wanted to then have a list with booleans in it, you need to have a whole new type. And, and if you wanted to reverse a list, you'd have to write the reverse function twice, once for lists of integers and once for lists of booleans. And that's very irritating because then you think, well, I'm writing the same code, but... The only thing that's forcing me to write the same code is that the type system won't let the same function apply to a list of integers and a list of booleans, right? So that's the type system getting in your way. But the solution is not to abandon the type system, but to make the type system more expressive so that you can say, oh, no, reverse takes a list of anything and returns a list of the same thing. Right? So that's just polymorphism. So polymorphism makes the type system more complicated, but it also makes it more expressive so that it lets you write the programs you want to write, let you say what you mean. So this is very important because if you, as it were, discount static typing because the languages you've encountered so far make it awkward or make you feel as if the type system's getting in your way, it may be that you simply only encountered languages with poor static type systems. And so in Haskell, we've gone a bit, maybe a bit too far, but we've gone completely gangbusters on making the type system extremely expressive so that you are very seldom stuck in a situation in which you think, I know the program I want to write, but the type system just doesn't let me write it. It's much, much, much more common for the type errors to mean, actually, you made a mistake here. And you look at it and think, oh, that is a mistake. Thank you. Whereas that's not true with weak type systems. Often they really do get in the way. It's one of those things, and I'm assuming, I don't know that it's because they're weaker, but things like, the early days of C-sharp and the early days of Java, people got fed up with static typing because it was redeclarative. So if if I'm declaring a new int, I've got to declare that variable to be of type int, so I'm yeah. really duplicating that statement, whereas Haskell's so strongly typed, it can infer a lot of those types as well on your behalf, is my understanding, correct? Yes, yes, though what you're really describing is type inference, and typically type inference gets harder as the type system gets more expressive. So the direction Haskell is moving in makes inference more difficult. But what I realized is that the thing that really makes inference difficult and means forces these extra type annotations in uh, Java and C-sharp is subtyping. Type inference together with subtyping is pretty difficult. Indeed, there may be no unique best solution We lack principal types. So Haskell doesn't have subtyping at all. It just has parametric polymorphism. And it turns out that 
just taking parametric polymorphism and you know doing lots of stuff with that, including you know type classes and type families and a whole lot of other stuff. But they all sit on top of parametric polymorphism. Type inference remains tractable, and for most of the time, you still have principal types. And we've gone places like generalized algebraic data types where you don't have principal types, and then we need to think about how can we express exactly which functions need type annotations to make sure that you've got a unique most general type. But we found decent answers to those. All of that stuff becomes much more difficult if you have subtyping. Nevertheless, it's worth noting that Java and C Sharp have both increased quite substantially the level of type inference offered by the compiler. So very often you can leave out type annotations and add declaration sites in Java and C Sharp these days. You've got to know the rules, but often you can leave it out. And it seems like the other thing that the type system I've heard gives you is the ability to start writing your program in almost a very lispy style, where it's the very outside in and you don't care about what the next thing you're going to be doing is, where you can just say, okay, I've got my top level function that's my driver, and I know it needs to call out this, but I really don't care what that's doing at this point. Mm-hmm. So because of the Pascal static type system, is you can define... You can just define the function and say it takes this type without necessarily implementing it. Yeah, but you could do that in Java or C Sharp as well. I'm not sure that's anything very specific to functional programming. Okay. Or even to a statically typed language. Any language will support you writing stub functions. Yeah, I've just heard a lot of the people using Haskell have found that what I've heard is that the strong typing system kind of helps that stub out, but maybe that's... Right. We have recently added support for incomplete programs, so you can write things like this. If you've got the chat window open, so you can write something like this. So you can write an underscore in your function for something that you haven't finished yet. Maybe that's what people are referring to. That's right. So this is an incomplete program. You can actually run it. It'll compile all the way to being runnable. And if you ever need that underscore, you'll get a runtime exception. But you get a compile time warning, which tells you what type it is as well. So that's quite convenient in a statically typed language. You can often, if you've got a function, you don't know, you think, oh, I've got this library function. I wonder what types of arguments it takes. F of X, you know, you know we're going to call funny library function. It'll tell you what types of arguments funny lib function requires. I think that's what I was actually hearing too, was I guess the incomplete programs where you can actually compile and start to run and get... Yep work your way through what it is because the type system will be able to fill in those ideas. Well, we don't necessarily fill them in with an executable program. With the incomplete bits, we'll simply fail at runtime if you ever evaluate. But you may not. Maybe you just don't want to finish writing the program yet, but the bits you want to execute are the bits you have finished writing. Yeah, and or I don't know what it is exactly, and the program and compiler will tell me exactly what I need to pass in here and what I need to get because I'm not quite sure how as you said, how that library function, what exactly is needed. Yeah. So another thing that we've added along the same lines recently, which I'm quite really quite pleased with, it was somebody else's suggestion. Both of these were other people's suggestions. It's always a good thing to get suggestions from your users. Is you can even run programs that have type errors. So usually a statically typed program, if you've got a type error, it won't even generate code. It just won't run it at all. With GHC these days, you can say defer type errors, which means that all your type errors become warnings rather than errors, it'll compile the program all the way through to executable code. But if the bit that you want to execute doesn't stray into the bit of the program that has the type errors, everything will be fine. If it does, then you'll get the very same type error that was a warning will show up at runtime as a runtime exception. That sounds really interesting. I could see where that could be useful just to prove out one small little area that you know is working. Yeah, that's right. This addresses some of the things that people who enjoy dynamic languages often say, which is that, look, you know, I've got this program, it's not quite finished, I've, fin- I've modified some of it, I haven't finished modifying the rest, it's all in a bit of a half-baked state, but I still want to run it. They like that. Okay. Make sure to put these little samples that you've typed in and put those in the show right. notes in the part where we're talking about this so people can come back and reference the examples. Right. So where do you see Haskell going? Like, what's on your list of things for bringing to Haskell now that you feel is missing or just want to play with and expand the challenges that you have with bringing to Haskell? Two things that I'm thinking about a lot at the moment. One is verification. So static types give you some level of, give you pretty strong properties of your program, but they're not as strong as you'd like. You can say, 
I want sort returns a list of things, but you'd like to know that the list was in an increasing order or that it contains the same elements as the input list. And for that, a type system, you can go in the direction of dependent types that let you say all of these kind of things. But another, actually quite closely related direction is to go in the direction of refinement types, where you can say, well, this returns a list of in such that, and then you can, as it were, say something about the list that it returns. And this language of refinements is the language that lets you give the properties of the essentially the post-condition or the preconditions for the function. And so this, again, is in the spirit of letting you say what you mean. And the hope is that we can statically verify quite a lot of these claims. But we'll statically verify it using an off-the-shelf theorem prover, which are highly expressive and sophisticated, rather than with the built-in type system, which is a pretty weak theorem prover. Very well behaved, but weak compared to uh, full-on theorem provers. So I'm quite optimistic about verification stuff. Lots of work has been done for C and Java and so forth. And those guys can make so much progress with such difficult and intractable languages. Surely we should be able to make a lot more progress with starting with such a beautiful starting point as something like Haskell. So Dimitrios uh, and I are working with Ranjit Jalo and Nikki Vazu at UCSD on Liquid Haskell. This is really Ranjit and Nikki's work primarily. We're just contributing. But Liquid Haskell is a way of adding refinement types to Haskell as a kind of plug-in. So GHC itself is, acts as a library in this context. So I think that is pretty exciting. What are other big things that I'm thinking about? I had a paper with Derek Dry and Scott Kilpatrick at Popple about larger-scale modularity. So Hackage is a wonderful system for versioning and distributing Haskell packages. But it does have the property that every package that you upload depends on some particular dependent packages. You might want to say, ah, oh, my package needs a random number generator. Okay, so I depend on a random number generator, but you have to pick one, a particular random number generator. You say, I depend on that. And that's part of your package specification. Nobody else can change it. So your package depends on that random number generator. If somebody wants to make it depend on another one, they have to sort of download and edit your package. It'd be much better to say, I depend on any random number generator that satisfies this API. The slogan there would be software components, in which a software component is a piece of functionality in the sky that depends on other components that supply these interfaces and have these properties and provide some interfaces that have these other properties. And then the client can, as it were, take software components, perhaps written by other people, and plug them together, assuming their APIs are compatible, and perhaps get a working system. So this is the same territory that's stressed by ML modules and by mix-ins in other settings. And there's been a whole big research trend about this. But what Derek and Scott have done is to apply all of that research expertise to Haskell itself, or rather to Cabal, because we're not proposing to change Haskell's module language, because it has a nice, simple module language. We don't need to change that, because it's quite good for programming up to the scale of a few hundred modules for a single package. But we're applying it to Cabal, where the package is the unit of versioning and distribution. And those are the things that we want to treat as a software component. So those are two areas that I'm working on myself at the moment. Another that I think is very interesting, but lack the cycles to work on, is all the parallelism stuff. For example, Tim Watson and his colleagues are working, a sort of loose federation of people are working on Cloud Haskell, which is a sort of Erlang-like version of Haskell with the works on distributed machines in which all the processes send messages to each other. I think that's very interesting too. There's actually a lot of stuff going on. There's tons of stuff still going on in the type system. We added safe coercions to Haskell recently. There's a paper about that in ICFP coming up. It's on my homepage as well. Just tons of stuff going on. Those sound really interesting, all of them. Let me re-ask you refinements just to make sure that I'm understanding it and possibly anybody who hasn't heard about it. Mm, yeah. Essentially, those refinements are almost like defining invariance of the functions and including the types where the types include extra invariance on those algebraic types as well yeah something like this so here's an example right so the first type signature just says f as type int to int the second one is a refinement type that says f takes an int let's call it x and returns an int let's call it y such that y is bigger than x okay so you can see that We've, you, you might imagine this is refining the type of the result in a sense of refining the type, meaning narrowing the set of things that it can legitimately return. Not any int, but only the ints that are bigger than its input. Is that on the types themselves as well and not just the functions, or is it, are you just refining the function declarations? Well, we're allowing, this is, as it were, 
built on top of and rather separate from the existing Haskell type system will stay unchanged. The liquid Haskell sort of sits on top and lets you write these refinements somewhat separately from the Haskell types. But you can think of it as being a sort of a souped up Haskell type for the function. So yes, these types can be higher order as well. I think you might be able to write function G, which takes as its argument. So here's a function G that takes as its argument a function that had better return a result that's bigger than its input. Okay. I was asking along the lines of defining a new type where I've got a age. A new data type, for example. Yeah, a new data type, like an right, age yes. where it's an int, but it is an int that must be greater than zero because oh, we don't yes, have the concepts yes. of... Right, yes. Yes, you'd want to be able to do things like that. Yeah, yeah. And Liquid Haskell does indeed supply things like that too. We're only just beginning with this. We don't have a good story about everything yet by any means, but I think it's very promising. Okay. And then with the modularity we're talking about just being able to say almost a plugin type of thing where you've got a it's more of a plugin style modules that say here's my contract go find me anything else so it's kind of the plugin architecture that you would think of if you're in other languages or coming from other applications where you can write a plugin for eclipse and it can be found and used and included as long as it meets that contract but you're just saying that at the module level and component level for your Haskell software, where it's... Right, and I have these connections statically typed. I'm not sure whether Eclipse plugins are statically, you know, whether there's a static type check that all the input APIs are satisfied, but maybe they are. Yeah, I don't, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure about that. I was just using that as a example for people yeah. who may not be as in-depth, but used a more mainstream right. language and tool set. But actually, even with, you know, with, with any language, if you just think of a library for you know, a GUI library, it might depend on a random number generator library. So the author of the GUI library might want to not have to specify which random number generator library to use. You might like to just say, oh, use any random number generator library that satisfies this interface. That's an obvious thing to want, really, isn't it? So your software components become things with, as it were, plugs on the bottom and sockets on the top. And then somebody who's gluing together a whole application takes all these components and plugs all the plugs into the compatible sockets. That seems like a sensible way to build software out of components that are built by other people in other places at other times. That makes great sense because I can see just being even a number generator contract that says, I just need my next number, whether or not it's a number in a series or it's a number a incrementing by two series or a Fibonacci yeah. series or no, just get me a next number which is yeah, random right. and I don't care that it's whatever. Yeah. Essentially the way I need to generate a key in my database. What do I want? Do I want a GUID? Do I want something else? Or do I want incrementing numbers? It doesn't matter as long as you can just provide me something and possibly yeah. say it, the constraint is unique as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So what you want to do is you want to establish the API for this abstraction, write down any laws it should satisfy. Maybe harder to verify those laws, but again, Liquid Haskell gives you a clue here, right? Because when I say it's compatible, the plug and the socket are compatible, what do I mean? Well, type compatible would be a good start. But maybe they have refinement types that we could check as well. So these two things I described might actually fit together a little bit in the end. Well, that's a lot to think about and see how that plays out. I'm really looking forward to it. I've just started scratching the surface of Haskell. Right. I'm still working my way through Erlang and getting some better experience with Erlang after messing with Clojure a little bit, but Haskell's really on the list of things to check out, so I'm looking forward to digging in to that and seeing what's coming through. That's good. So I'd like to switch topics ever so slightly and talk about your work with bringing computer science curriculum into the school system over there. Right, yeah. Can you give a background to everybody that on just the kind of approach you're doing? Yeah, so in the UK, we've, for the last 15 years, we've had a national curriculum. So UK has a national curriculum, and, and it includes a subject called ICT, Information and Communication Technology. So that's already better than it might be. So there is a slot in the timetable from primary school onwards, which kids learn about computers in some form. But it's come to mean how to use Microsoft Office at its lowest common denominator. Many teachers do a lot better than that, but not all by any means. So we'd come to a bad place in which we were teaching kids about how to use software. But we weren't really teaching them anything about how to make software or how software works. And I think that's a real shame, right? It's sort of lost to our children. That's 
it's not just a loss for the ones who might become software developers. I think that just because, just like we'd like every child to know some elementary science, so that they understand something about the world that they live in, even if they're not going to become a scientist, perhaps even especially if they're not going to become a scientist, they need to know some elementary science so that hairdressers and lawyers and journalists all need to know some, a little bit of science just to understand the world they live in. So in the same way, I think they need to know a little bit of computer science to understand the digital world that they live in. And when I say understand, I mean understand and feel part of and empowered by a sense of ownership of rather than here's something magic that I have no control over that's built by somebody else in some other country that I'm powerless to do anything except use. So our crusades, we started this thing called the Computing at School Working Group in the UK. Our crusade was to establish the idea of a subject discipline behind ICT or that underlies ICT in the same way that the subject discipline of science and mathematics underlies more practical applications in engineering, say. Now, that's quite a big ask, right? Because it means essentially establishing a new subject discipline at school, namely computer science. And computer science has only been recognised as a university subject for the last 40 or 50 years, whereas maths and physics have been there in the school curriculum for, you know, hundreds of years. So it's a big change. But nevertheless, it turned out that the dynamics of the last few years in Britain has made it possible to do that. I'm eliding a great deal of paddling under the water and many, many meetings and discussions and documents and white papers and conferences and who knows kind of carry on. But in the end, England has adopted a new national curriculum and as part of which the computing curriculum, it's now called Computing and Not ICT, makes an explicit statement that all children should learn computer science and should learn programming as well and should do so from primary school onwards. And this is now enshrined in the national curriculum, which launches in September this year. So it's a very, very big change, uh, one I'm absolutely thrilled about. The job is far from done, because, of course, changing national policy is one thing. Making it a vibrant reality in every school in the land is quite another. Because we've got many school teachers at secondary schools that we do have specialist ICT teachers, but many of them have come in to the subject by way of business studies or the humanities. And they're good ICT teachers and they're very motivated for the benefit of their students. And so they're willing to work hard and willing to learn, but they don't have the innate background to deal with the new curriculum so that we owe it to them, since we're asking them to do something entirely new that they've never been trained to do, we owe it to them to support and encourage and equip them to do that. Now, that's a task. So we're busy engaging in a national program of professional development and teacher training and subject knowledge enhancement so that the teachers will feel sort of confident and enthusiastic about delivering the new curriculum. So it's a really a big, big inflection point in certainly the English national curriculum. Similar things are going on in Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland, but at different paces. And there's all sorts of particularities in there as well. So the English example is the one I know about. So what does that kind of look like for teaching computer science to elementary school kids and bringing them up through that? Is that things like just working with things like Logo at a certain point where it's more, here's some basic stuff? What does that kind of look like? And yeah, how so does Some of it's programming. Uh, programming is important. And one of the good things about the last five years is a complete explosion in the number of really well-crafted programming environments that are aimed at children at school. So you mentioned Logo, but the Scratch and Alice have also been around for a number of years now and are very widely used in schools. And more recently, there's Kodu, there's Greenfoot, there's Blockly recently. Some colleagues of mine at Microsoft developed TouchDevelop. And so there's suddenly from a sort of a very, what's the word? You know, there was Logo and that was it. There's now a rich variety of ways to teach children about programming that are very engaging and get you very quickly to the point where you can do something exciting. But that's not all, right? So programming is only part of computer science. It's like the practical work of computer science. But science has a practical work, of course, but it also has intellectual subject discipline stuff. So what is the subject discipline of computer science in a way that you might teach it to primary school children? Well, that's a good question. So computer science has to do with information and computation. So we would like our children to learn about information and computation. How can we do that? Well, if you're going to look in one place, go and look at Computer Science Unplugged, csunplugged.org. Tim Bell's site, where he describes how to teach computer science to primary school children without using computers at all. So that's the unplugged bit. There's no computers whatsoever. There's just things like 
how could I use a pencil and paper to do a compression algorithm? Or how could I do an error correcting code using some sort of playing cards and rows and columns and parity? Or how could I do sorting using a sorting network drawn on the floor? Or weighing, how could I find the heavy coin in a pile of coins using a weighing machine? So these are all things where children can actually do things themselves that have computational content or informational content. And there's actually tons of this kind of material around. There's no shortage of it. It's just a question of sort of organizing it in a coherent way. And within a sort of conceptual framework that says, what we're doing is we're not just having a bit of fun here. We are beginning to teach the foundational aspects of computer science, which will go on and stand you in good stead right until you're a become a software developer, or perhaps not. Maybe you'll become a lawyer, in which case the early stuff you learnt in primary school will still be standing you in good stead as you use digital devices and, the, and interact with the digital world in your professional and, and home life. It's one of those, I've got a couple nieces and a young, very young one-year-old daughter, and it's one of those kind of things is about thinking about how to bring that in in the future for those nieces and nephew and my own child as she starts to get older, of how to bring about and educate not only her, but bring that knowledge to other kids that she comes around and how to entice them and get them thinking about what that actually means and whether or not yep. it was things like doing a sort, but with people in the classroom. And Okay, now you have to arrange yourself from low to high, and here's the different yep. ways you can do it. Yeah. Do That's a quick right. sort, group off, you two get together, and you guys organize yourself or mm-hmm. or things like that. Versus yeah. pulling out the Lego Mindstorms or something else, or pulling out the Parrot AR drones and treating them as a real-world logo of saying, look, you can move this around. Yeah. You can type up and down in the com- into a, like a redevelop print loop and watch it move up and down or left and right or forward and back and type of thing. So I wasn't sure where, for someone who's actually putting this to work at a national level even, in schools, the approach you're kind of taking of, how do you introduce that and as a follow-up of how can people who are interested in doing this and bringing it to their local community or just their local schools where their children are going or that they might be into have how to help work and bring this in and help contribute and expand this. So one thing they can do is just join computing at school, right? So here's the URL. But anybody anywhere in the world can join CAS. And it's a very thriving community of software professionals and school teachers interacting about how best to teach computer science at school. And there are, I forget, 1,500-odd resources or something. This is material that teachers or others have developed and then uploaded to share with others. So there's an absolute goldmine of stuff there. Some of the resources just pointers elsewhere to say, oh, look, this other piece of work is fantastic. You could use that. So in terms of sort of how to get started in your local community... Just join CAS and ask for help or just sort of get going. You know, just, just there's nothing standing in the way, really. Just go ahead and do it. You find lots of ideas on there. As far as how to introduce it in CAS, we don't say, here's the way. There's no, do you use Arduinos or Floor Turtles or Computer Science Unplugged? No, we say, all of the above are good. And in the end, it's up to an individual school teacher to decide what's going to suit their children better. So, we're very much into kind of diversity and letting a thousand flowers bloom rather than having one true way that's sort of shrink-wrapped and say, here's the way we think you should teach computer science. Not that at all. But I hope that, partly because we don't really know. Nobody's tried to teach computer science to a whole country from primary school onwards before. So we're engaged in a rather bold and grand and exciting experiment. And I think we'll learn from that. And maybe then people will produce sort of shrink-wrap material that is better constructed and that we've got some evidence to suppose works well. Meanwhile, publishers are jumping on this. Since the one advantage of having it in the national curriculum is then educational publishers have an incentive to develop stuff because they know there'll be a market. That's one of the good things about centralization rather than diversity is that it's a sort of forcing function for saying there will be a market for something. So in Britain, that we've got publishers are running around producing quite well-crafted materials to support the new curriculum. That's exciting too. Some of them will be good, some of them will be less good. And we hope that by trying them out, teachers will tell us, this is great, and this stuff, actually not so good, I'd prefer this other one. So it's somewhat anarchic and sort of crowdsourced rather than centralized. Yeah, that sounds really interesting too, is the, essentially almost the evolution of it, of here's a thousand different ways, and then here's ten, and those ten each go off into a thousand different ways. But feedback, the things that worked and didn't work from those other 990. Yeah. That's fine. 
especially when it looks like you're building that community for anybody around the world to join and it's not just local to the UK. Yeah, it's certainly not closed. So it's focused on UK issues. And there's a lot of chatter about particular examinations, for example, to, you know, what this question means or how to deal with that piece of coursework. There's quite a lot of policy discussion as well. And that tends to be oriented around the setting of the UK. But it's absolutely not closed. And many, many of the issues are the same wherever you are. I mean, what programming languages are good, teaching materials and, and exercises and lesson plans and so forth work anywhere in the world. So there's a tremendous amount of material that's very common between us. So I'd encourage people listening to this to join CAS and sort of get roll the sleeves up where you are. I feel that there's a sense of in which we're at an inflection point, not just in the UK, we've sort of moved past the inflection point. But I think many other countries are poised immediately before it. That is, they see there's a, an issue. They kind of know the direction they want to go. It's rather hard to achieve institutional change. But there's quite a lot you can do without institutional change, just sort of locally on the ground as after school clubs in your school or talk to your school teacher or your head teacher about it. And I'm also hopeful at a policy level that the example of England making this really quite significant change will encourage others, maybe even feel that we're going to be left out if we don't pull our socks up. That's kind of my hope. So we carry the excitement and the anxiety of being sort of in the lead here. Sounds really fantastic. So I'm definitely going to be checking that out and seeing, following along and seeing what I can do and trying to see at least what yeah. I can bring back to the extended family, even if it's not trying to be able to go out and attend schools right offhand and see what they can share. So that sounds absolutely fantastic and interesting. Is there resources for people who know teachers that are doing this that they could point them to to be able to teach the teachers on how to teach some of this stuff? So if someone knows people who are doing those computer-related programs where it's more just the office, does that Computing at School have the resources for teaching the teachers as well? So if they wanted to bring stuff in a little more and... Fine, we're teaching office, but maybe for a week we're going to go divert and teach some, teach a little bit about. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of material about just learning basic computer science. It's a blurry boundary, right? Because a lesson that's suitable for a 12-year-old might actually be quite suitable for a teacher to learn the concept in the first place. So there's a great deal of material there on CAS Online and point us to material elsewhere. And we're not the only people who are developing material. Code.org in the United States has developed a really very nice course for K-8, through I think which is readily available on the front page of code.org. Uh, the Australians are developing a new computing curriculum. The New Zealand and Tim Bell has computing in their secondary schools, certainly, and a great deal of supporting material. It's, it's just, you know, we've got material coming out of our ears. It's a, <laughs> it's a really exciting time. I'm looking forward to see what you forge ahead and can prove out as well. I know we talked about this, and this is one of your big kind of side projects. Is there anything else you'd like to plug for people to know about? Any other things you're going to be going and attending that people can see you in presentations coming up in the relatively near future? No, I don't think so. Those are the two big parts of my life, functional programming and school education in computer science. And together they occupy, aside from my home life, which is also interesting at the moment, it's because we've adopted three children recently. I'm pretty busy, those three bits of my life. What's the best place for people to find you online? Just your Microsoft research? Yeah, just my homepage. I keep my homepage fairly up to date. I'm no good on Twitter. I have lots of followers, but I've never tweeted anything. And I have a LinkedIn thing, but I never look at that either. I'm not very good with technology, you know. <laughs> so my homepage, that's my main communication mechanism. And, and, you know, and when I write a paper, I put it up there. That's the best place to look. Great. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, I would like to thank Mr. Simon Payton Jones for taking time out of what it sounds especially busy to <laughs> talk to me today. Great. It was a pleasure talking with you. And an honor. Great. Thanks a lot. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery. <laughs>